0: The last book in the Bible has piqued the curiosity of readers since the day it was written. Some find it confusing, others find it fascinating, a few find Revelation, well, bizarre. So what do we make of this divinely inspired book? Today on Insight for Living, Chuck Swindoll presents his first message in our verse-by-verse study through Revelation. Along the way, we'll see the unveiling of God's timeline for the future and we'll see how John elevates the main character of Revelation, Jesus Christ, in all his glory. Chuck begins with prayer.
1: We are very grateful, Father. We are very grateful, having become acquainted with your grace, which sought us, found us not looking for you but running from you and in your mercy you found us and you loved us when we were dreadfully unlovely and disinterested and running as fast as we could in another direction without any good in us but great grace in yourself you stooped to show us Christ and to reveal his beauty and sacrificial life and death all on our behalf. Thank you, Father, for finding us and caring about us and relieving us through the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for your word in our language, bound conveniently in a book for us to read. May these pieces of black print on white pages come alive, especially from this final revelation you have set forth for us to understand. Assist us, our Father, as we journey Through these 22 chapters, be our guide as you are our God. Be glorified as your Son has been lifted up above all. And be pleased with what we learn and, more importantly, with how we live, what we discover. May the blessing of those who read and hear and heed The words of this prophecy rest upon us, your people, for we take this very seriously. Thank you for those who watch over us and provide for our peace. Thank you for those in lonely and difficult places today. Thank you for those who serve you as ministers of Christ in capacities that we could hardly imagine in difficult places we have never been, who sacrificially pour out their lives on behalf of others for your cause. And now, our Father, as we enjoy the privilege of giving of all things, giving to you who has no need, that the work of ministry might continue unhindered, find us faithful and generous and joyful. And may the kind of peace that the Lord Jesus promised be ours, now that we have the peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we give and in whose name we pray. And everyone said, amen.
0: You're listening to Insight for Living. To dig deeper into the Bible with Chuck Swindoll, be sure to download his Searching the Scriptures guide by going to insight.org studies. Chuck calls today's message, The Apocalypse in Panorama.
1: Revelation is the answer to the gospel's hope. Revelation provides the solution to the problem that is encountered all the way through the book from Genesis to Jude. Revelation says, good ultimately triumphs. It is indeed the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, John has heard a voice, and the voice has given him a message, and John is curious. So he turns, verse 12, to look in the direction of the voice, and he witnesses something he's never seen before. He sees this voice in invisible form, this one speaking to him, and he says, having turned, chapter 1, verse 12, I saw seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash, his head and his hair were white like like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, I've seen charts on the book of Revelation, and when you are one chapter into it, you have this creature, and he has flames coming out of his eyes, but it doesn't say flames came out of his eyes. Look at what it says. It says that his eyes were like a flame of fire. It goes on to describe him with another analogy. In his right hand, he I should say verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze. And and his voice was like the sound of many waters. It doesn't say that the voice was many waters. It says it was like many waters, apparently was deep and roaring and commanding. But we're not really left to wonder who this is or what this is about. Look at verse 20. You're on safe ground when you interpret according to the scriptures. Now, we're told about the mystery. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, why, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Still a little bit uncertain, isn't it? Angelos, translated angels, in the scriptures, in the New Testament, is a term that frequently means messenger. The angel of such and such is frequently the messenger of such and such, and so this, no doubt, would represent the seven leaders of the seven churches mentioned for us in verse 11. The seven messengers would be those who make the message known to each of the seven churches. So we are given the interpretation. Now, go to chapter 13, this is one of my favorites. Chapter 13 is the most, uh, is the most lengthy portrayal of the Antichrist who is yet to come. So it begins with a bang. The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. The dragon is identified in the book of Revelation as Satan himself, so he's not called Satan, he's called the dragon, stood on the sand of the seashore. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadema, or ten diadems, ten crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like a bear his mouth like the mouth of a lion and satan or the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority and i saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast and why we we have this beast portrayed as he leads people with enormous uh, charisma and and authority and he has answers that no one else before him has had and, and the people follow him and in fact they become a part of his system and they receive a mark, a mark on their foreheads and we, we, we read of the benefit of that mark in verse 17, he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number of that is that of a man, and his number is 666. So, restrain your imagination. Where the Scripture helps us, we'll allow the Scripture to speak. Where... Good study and reference work assists us. We will suggest that, but there will not be dogmatic statements uh, made or predictions given that we can't back up with good scholarship. Now let's move to some foundational information that will give us an understanding, a better understanding of the book. First of all, the title of the book. The title is taken directly from the first line of the first verse. Apocalypsis Iesu Christu, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Please observe, revelation is singular. The most common mistake made by well-meaning Christians and non-Christians is to call this book plural. It isn't the book of Revelations. It is the body of revelation, so get rid of the S. When we get our word apocalypse in the English language, it conveys the idea of an imminent cosmic cataclysm, the ultimate, the ultimate disaster and final doom of something, but that's, that's not the meaning in its original Greek. Apocalypsis means unveiling, disclosing. Something that has been hidden or not known is now made visible. It's used uh, over 15 times in the New Testament. Invariably, it conveys that meaning. This is an unveiling, a disclosing of the Lord Jesus and his plan for the future. The book discloses what will occur. Now, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember the title. The book is not titled, The Confusing of Events, The Hiding of Important Information. God's desire is that we understand the future as best we can. Remember the words, and put it in the margin of your notes, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, Paul says, I would not want any of you to be uninformed concerning those who are asleep. By that, he means those who have died. And then he goes on to describe the future of those who have passed from this earth. But the point is, I don't want you to be ignorant. There is nothing spiritual about ignorance if knowledge is available. There is something wonderful about admitting one's ignorance if no one could know by investigation. But if the truth is set forth, God's desire is that we go to the the trouble, if you will, of informing ourselves because when it comes to the future, we gain confidence for the present. If we know where we're going, and God doesn't suddenly desire to confuse us, having made the previous truth clear. John MacArthur writes in his book on Revelation, these two words, the revelation, are essential to understanding this book. Many people are confused by the book of Revelation, viewing it as a mysterious, bizarre, indecipherable mystery, but nothing could be further from the truth. Far from hiding the truth, the book of Revelation reveals it. Then he adds this comment I think is good. It is unthinkable to believe God would speak with precision and clarity from Genesis to Jude, and then when it comes to the end, abandon all precision and clarity. Good point. The title of the book tells you God wants us to know about the future as much as we can and to grasp it for application now to help us as we face what will come in the future. Secondly, the writer of the book. We're told of him in verse 1. It's communicated by the angel to the bondservant, John. He's mentioned in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And in verse nine, with the first person singular, I, John. So he's literally writing the book. He gave us the gospel to give us something to believe. He gave us the three letters to help us be certain. He gives us the revelation to make us ready. So John, when he comes to this last book of the Bible, his final message in writing writes unlike he wrote in the Gospels or in the letters. What do we know of John? Well, look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus... Uh, Before we go to where he was, let me remind you that John has been placed there because of a ruler who was vicious in his treatment of Christians. Domitian was far worse than Nero. He reigned from 81 to 96 AD, 81 to 96 Probably the letter is, or the book is written toward the end of that time, 94, 95, 96. John, having been exiled to the island to be silenced. John had been ministering at Ephesus, and Domitian, hoping to silence the impact of his message, felt that he belonged exiled, and he put him at a place of a Roman penal colony on the island of Patmos, tiny little six mile by 10 miles long island in the South Aegean Sea. Matter of fact, uh, you have a set of maps somewhere in your Bible. If you don't, you need another Bible. Uh, Go to the uh, last section of the maps. You will see the journeys of Paul and uh, you will find in the Aegean Sea, if you can't find that, you need glasses because that's right there in the middle. You'll see the Aegean and you will locate Ephesus in what is today Turkey, but in those days was called Asia. And just west southwest of Ephesus, only 37 miles into the sea, you'll find the little island of Patmos. Patmos. John Walford writes, The exile of John to the Isle of Patmos is in itself a moving story of devotion to Christ, crowned with suffering. This small island, rocky and forbidding in its terrain, is located in the Aegean Sea southwest of Ephesus, just beyond the island of Samos. Early church fathers, such as Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, and Eusebius, state that John was sent to this island as an, exile, as an exile under the ruler Domitian. According to Victorianists, John, though aged, was forced to labor in the mines located at Patmos. Early sources indicate that at about 96, at Domitian's death, John was allowed to return to Ephesus when the emperor Nerva was in power. Nerva succeeded Domitian on the throne of the Roman Empire, and apparently was soft toward those of the faith, or at least softer than Domitian, and John returned to his homeland of Asia. Uh, I have been to the island of Patmos, as have some of you. It is rugged, it it is rocky. Uh, When you travel the Aegean Sea, you look forward to Patmos because it has such notoriety being linked to the place where the revelation was written. When you are there, there are guides who delight to take you to the cave where John was. And, of course, cameras begin to flash as stomachs begin to turn a little, and, and you find yourself a little elevated, thinking you're going to see the cave. And when you get inside the cave, which, by the way, is covered with religious stuff, you get to a stone that's hollowed out. That's where John lay his head at night when he was tired, flashes of camera. And then, then this is where he put his arm. That's why the stone is worn as it is for flashing cameras and, and the guide loves it and uh, gets extra tips for comments like that. It's hogwash. You don't know if he was in a cave and you don't know where he lay his head and even if he did, he would never hollow it out by putting his head in it, uh, give me a break. I've laid my arm on my bed all of these years, and it does not have a little place where I lay my arm, and that's a mattress. Uh, yeah. So understand again, we, we love things. We love religious stuff. Let's take the religion out of it. Let's help it be real. It was on an island and it is the island of Patmos because scripture states both. In fact, scripture tells us he was there because of his commitment to the word of God and because of his testimony of Jesus. It was out of persecution. But the, the tiny details of, the, of his life leave us at that point. He is surrounded by water All those years, and in the solace and solitude and perhaps even in the pain and torment of his exile, the Lord appears to him and reveals to him what he was to write. And and we leave it. We leave it at that. A third I would mention, along with the title and the writer of the book, I would mention the blessing of the book. It's unusual. Look at verse 3. It's like a beatitude. When you get into the Matthew Gospel, you quickly come across the the beatitudes. Blessed is he, or blessed are they. Here's a blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. You'll find a similar statement at the very end of the book in 22.7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So they're like bookends. There are blessing bookends on this revelation that has been preserved for us. You will be blessed by hearing and reading and heeding. You will be blessed in heeding the truth of it. So this is a book that is not simply to satisfy idle curiosity. This is a book that, if kept close and held fast and guarded, this book will result in a life that can be greater blessed. And the promise is right there for us. As we work our way through the revelation, we're not only interested in gathering prophetic facts, we're interested as we hunt for truth in things to live by, truths to embrace and even in places to guard. Now, uh, turn the page to verse 19, and I will show you happily an inspired outline. You who have spoken publicly know the value of an outline. You who have reviewed books usually have an outline in your mind of how the book is put together. It's wonderful that the Lord has given us an inspired outline of the book of the Revelation. To some, it's too simplistic to suggest as an outline. I find, on the contrary, it's very helpful. John is told to do three things. One, write the things which you have seen. Second, the things which are. And third, the things which will take place after these things. Now, let's let it say what it says. John is told to write. And he is told the categories in which he is to do the writing. Write the things that you see. That's chapter one. He sees this one who comes dressed in this way. Uh, he, He sees the details of his appearance and he sees as we will discover the Lord Jesus who is the Alpha and the Omega.
0: Chuck Swindoll is just getting started in this enlightening study in the book of Revelation. He titled this portion of our study, Unveiling the End, Act 1. This first message in the comprehensive three-act series will continue next time on Insight for Living. To learn more about this ministry, visit us online at insightworld.org. As we launch this new study, I want to point out a couple of resources that will enhance your understanding of Revelation. First, did you know that our website includes all of Chuck's sermons? You can learn more about each study and find additional tools and study resources like the Insight for Living study tool for Revelation. We call this feature Searching the Scriptures. You'll often hear me mention this interactive resource at the beginning of our program. If you haven't taken advantage of Searching the Scriptures, I want to encourage you to check it out. It's interactive, which means you can type your notes directly into the online document. Or feel free to print it out as a PDF. You can even share the link with your small group Bible study. Here's the place to find Chuck's study notes called Searching the Scriptures. Just go to insightworld.org studies. Look for the series on Revelation called Unveiling the End, Act 1. There's no cost for using these resources, but as you're willing to partner with us, we deeply appreciate your voluntary donations. Every dollar given to Insight for Living is deployed for this singular purpose, to make disciples of Jesus Christ around the world just as he commanded. To give today, call us. If you're listening in the U.S., call 800-772-8888. Or you can give online at insight.org donate. I'm Bill Meyer, inviting you to join us next time when Chuck Swindoll continues to describe The Apocalypse in Panorama on Insight for Living. The preceding message, The Apocalypse in Panorama, was copyrighted in 2003, 2006, and 2024. And the sound recording was copyrighted in 2024 by Charles R. Swindoll, Inc. All rights are reserved worldwide. Duplication of copyrighted material for commercial use is strictly prohibited.